0: Recently, The Globe and Mail's Alex Buzikovic took to social media to express his dismay with the supposed revitalization of a park in North York he says ruined much of what made the public space great.
1: Yeah, that was uh, Ledbury Park in the former city of North York, which is designed by the architects Jim Sutcliffe, for the former city of North York back in 1997. It won a National Architecture Award. It's a beautiful project. And... Well, you know, probably three quarters of it is still basically intact, it just got a bunch of repairs, and I say those words with air
0: quotes, that butchered one of the central elements of the design. The park was designed with a nice fountain, which Alex says is the kind of feature that gets neglected by the city. And so that hasn't been working for a while, and this past year
1: the city decided to alter the building in the park and to put a new... Cheap steel staircase right on top of the fountain, and to pour some concrete to close the fountain up. So this very beautiful sort of idea of um, a sort of sequence of spaces and materials, you know, in which water is supposed to be sort of tumbling down from one level to another, now has this like big honking ugly staircase in the middle of it, and it's very clear that nobody involved saw it as significant or th- saw it as worthwhile to try and understand the design of this thing or figure out how to fix it. It's just a a flagrant disrespect for, you know, what the government itself has built.
0: It seems like while we've always built beautiful public spaces in our city, we don't put the same energy into stewardship of them.
1: Well, I actually, I've written about this before, but I think Toronto, like many other cities, would benefit from uh, a chief architect's office or a chief design officer. It used to be the case that cities, including Toronto, had in-house architects, a lot of them, and they had a lot of power. And it was sort of treated as a given that professionals would have control over public works. And, you know, enforcing quality was sort of part of that. Today, you know, Toronto's government is kind of sprawling and the planning culture in the city is run by planners most of whom are not designers and unfortunately design as such, landscape and architecture as such are not really emphasized and so unfortunately I think it's been really easy for decisions that require good taste, decisions that require an attention to design to go wrong. There just aren't enough people who think about these things or care about these things in positions of power Um, and it wouldn't take much to change that but there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest uh, among our leadership in in doing so
0: this is spacing radio Podcasting from the liminal beauty between summer weather and fall colours, I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, people have been flocking to Crow's Theatre to see The Master Plan, a play about Google's failed waterfront community, and we talk to playwright Michael Healy. And we tease the latest issue of Spacing called Once Upon a Time in Toronto with an interview with Catherine Hernandez, author of the novel Scarborough. But first... Globe and Mail architecture critic Alex Bozikovic gives us his impression of the new Love Park on Toronto's waterfront and reflects on the legacy of the park's creator, Claude Cormier, who recently passed away. Stand by. So, Alex Bozikovic, we are sitting in the beautiful, relatively new Love Park on the waterfront in Toronto. I'm going to try and get you to thread a needle which is difficult in an audio medium. I I think people who haven't been here need a little description of exactly what we're enjoying right now. So uh, can you turn your critic brain on and uh, give us a little breakdown of this park? I can give it a shot. So we're sitting on a wooden bench and we're looking towards
1: the large pond that is the center of this park. So this pond, which looks kind of roughly circular from where we're sitting, is actually in the shape of a heart. So if you're looking down at it from one of the um, high rise buildings that surround the four sides of this park, you'd be able to see this pond shaped like a heart and ringed by a line of red which is a bench made of red mosaic tile that's been sort of cracked into irregular shapes and and hand laid. So there's this pond with a red stripe around it. And in the middle of the pond is an island holding um, a healthy giant old catalpa tree. uh, And scattered around the park, including right in front of us, are a few little sculptures of animals. uh, Directly in front of us is a cast iron beaver. And one of the things about this place that that I really like is that there are many places to sit. This is what in the park's jargon is called a passive-use park. So we're sitting on a bench here, which is nicely shaded. We've got something to look at at the pond in front of us. And over on the far side of the park are a whole series of loose chairs and tables sitting under a um, geometrically complex pergola, which is got a couple of wisteria vines climbing up it and that pergola is eventually going to be shaded and for now it just reads like kind of a big piece of sculpture which is in the same green sort of soft green colors as the chairs under it and as we're sitting here there are probably a dozen people hanging out in the chairs reading there's a guy playing guitar
0: sitting on the edge of the pond this is just a place to linger a place to be. And the the pergola and the the chairs and tables beneath it, that's interesting to me because, uh, as you mentioned, there are not a lot of places to sit in in many spaces, public spaces in Toronto. And some people are just saying, just put chairs, you know, they they don't even have to be expensive chairs, you know, with a lot of design behind them, just put chairs in spaces. They do it in Europe, they do it all over, why can't we do it here? A lot of people said, "Uh, You know, people are going to steal the chairs, it's going to be a disaster, they won't respect the place. This opened in July, I mean, I didn't do a a count when I was there on the opening, but uh, it doesn't seem like uh, like the chairs have gone missing. Seems like a full compliment.
1: It looks like everything is fine. Um, You know, this whole place is actually um, mostly in, in really good shape. And part of that, I think, is that people are proud of it. And part of it, you know, unfortunately or not, is that some of the maintenance of this place is being done by the local BIA uh, rather than the city. So there are sort of dedicated people taking care of this and then more resources being devoted to keeping it from getting messy and keeping it from getting damaged than we would have in a normal park. You know, and the effect is that it feels good. It feels neat and clean. And the design of the space, which is very, very carefully
0: done, you know, is, is intact. This place feels like it's supposed to feel. Let's talk about the maintenance because we were both at the opening, uh, as I said, in July and uh, one of the first things that you sort of wondered about was the question of maintaining this place because, as you said, the, there's this beautiful red heart shape you can sit on. It's got tiny little redstone mosaic. Then uh, immediately in front of that, there's these sort of granite cobblestones uh, and then more patchwork uh, stones after that uh, of varying textures i have seen things like this pop out after a winter they can become accessibility issues you know and and they don't get replaced often or often enough Uh, so your concern was of maintenance uh you know can you tell me a bit about why you had those misgivings
1: Right. Well, the, this is an issue that's specific in the city of Toronto, but also is you know a thing that happens analogously in other places. And that is that often in the public sector, maintenance practices are limited. In other words, the people whose job it is to take care of a park know how to do certain things, have certain kinds of equipment, have certain kinds of skills and certain kinds of processes. But... If you have a park that doesn't fit into those things, that requires special kinds of maintenance or more work, then often those elements that require that attention just kind of fall apart. So to your point, you know, these granite cobblestones that are laid here in front of us, if they do pop out, what happens to them? Or, you know, if, A utility company has to cut open part of the park to uh, you know replace a conduit or a pipe which happens all the time are they just going to fill it back in with asphalt and then you know is the city actually going to get around to finding the right paving stones and putting the back in and doing the work properly you know i mean this is boring stuff but if it doesn't happen and it often doesn't happen then the result is that the place feels shabby
0: yeah i mean we like this aesthetic uh you know it it has a certain European feel, let's say broadly. And I was just in Leipzig, Germany, and you have these cobblestones everywhere, it's 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 a good look. But what I noticed is that every morning when I stepped out of uh, the uh, uh, hostel that I was staying in, there was a guy patching up the cobblestones. Uh, he had a bucket and a couple of simple tools, and if anything was loose or had popped out, he was replacing them. And that seemed to be a part of the rigorous daily maintenance of the place to to achieve that look and maintain it and uh i don't just based on experience of other public places in toronto i don't have a lot of confidence that we can maintain that kind of aesthetic well you know
1: neither do i and what you've just described is a different set of conditions than we have here and there's kind of a catch-22 in which you know parks departments and also you know transportation departments and other branches of government want things to be built in a standardized way because building things in a standardized way means you know you know how to fix it when it needs to be replaced or repaired it's very easy to figure out what it should cost and to hire the people to do it you know standardized processes are convenient and they're inexpensive and so we default to using asphalt to using poured concrete with the same kind of finish and the same kind of formula and where there are you know individual paving stones, those are concrete pavers of a particular kind, you know from a particular brand. And none of it is super attractive, <laughs> and none of it often stands up all that well. And what the designers of this park, Claude Cormier's office, asked for was was something quite different than the standard procedure. And you know, to your point, we don't have cobblestone maintenance people here in large numbers. I don't know even if Toronto's Parks Department has anyone on staff who has that specific trade. Certainly, they seem to be missing that. You know, they don't seem to have the capacity. So I guess the hope here is that, you know, this will be a better example. It'll be a place
0: in which, you know, the city learns to do better. And as you say, the the BIA also has a, a hand in, in the maintenance of it. And perhaps, unfortunately, they're, they're better suited to this kind of thing than the, the city at large.
1: Well, and we should talk about why that is. Uh, uh, please. So I think part of it is money. I mean, definitely having enough to hire people and to hire skilled people to do the work of property maintenance is a thing right? And Toronto's parks department, their budget is relative to after inflation and after accounting for population growth is lower now than it was 15 years ago. So I mean, there is a problem of resources here. But I don't think it's only a problem of resources. I think part of the thing is that in Toronto, Toronto is a fairly large city. And a lot of these processes are done on a citywide basis, or within one of the four districts that make up a quarter of the city. So the point is, There isn't one person whose job it is to make sure that this place is in good shape. There isn't one person whose job it is to look around and say, hey, the fountain's not working. Hey, you know, somebody painted on one of the benches. Hey, a chair is gone. All of the incremental bits and pieces that are going to happen in any public space. And because there isn't that place-specific attention, because there aren't staff whose job it is to find the problems and sort them out, you know, when something is broken, it goes on a list and there are a hundred other things on that list and maybe it gets fixed in October and maybe it gets fixed in March and who knows. And that I think is actually an, an organizational problem and a cultural problem that's fixable, but that runs very deep in the city right now.
0: There's also another job, another hat that I wear sometimes is, uh, I edit a magazine called ground for the Ontario association of landscape architects. And, uh, a common gripe that landscape architects often have all over Ontario is that places just don't plan for the long-term maintenance of, of any uh, outdoor space. You know, It's not just a Toronto thing in that respect, that uh, people want these nice places and they, they're okay with the initial sticker price, but uh, they, they, don't, uh, they don't really plan for the operating costs that uh, are going to continue to incur as long as the place is operational. That is unfortunately true, and this is true everywhere. I mean,
1: politicians everywhere like to cut ribbons. Everyone likes to make announcements for you know capital projects. In other words, we're building a new thing. You know, hooray! Let's celebrate the new thing we're building. Or we've just opened this fantastic new park. You know, it's a time to celebrate. You know, when you and I were here for the opening of this park, there was a huge crowd. There was a celebratory atmosphere. You know, the councillor got to give a nice speech, and everyone applauded her. And, you know, and rightly so, but. The work that we were just talking about a minute ago of replacing the cobblestones or you know cleaning the paint off the bench, this is not glamorous. Nobody gets any applause for doing that work, uh, and it also requires attention, right? Long-term attention from an organization and big organization. I think you know that sort of treats all parks as a as a system and all parks as kind of interchangeable. There's sort of an industrial aspect to the way in which that's done that means that specific places get overlooked and then they
0: start to crumble i also wanted to talk about the pond which is a major feature of of the park probably the central feature the the story of the pond uh, there hit a little hiccup when we went there on the opening it was pristine and then almost immediately after that it sort of changed in color people uh We're concerned about a a smell. I will say for the record, I've been sitting here for quite some time now enjoying myself and uh, there isn't a smell. The water is discolored from from what it was originally and there are signs that sort of let people know that, hey, this doesn't rely on chlorine, we're trying to use a natural filtration system, so bear with us. This is all part of the process. Uh, What are your thoughts on on the sort of uh, approach to this water feature? Well,
1: I mean, it's nice to see that the Toronto's Parks Department Is acknowledging the issue and knows that people are concerned about it such that they've gone to the trouble to put up a sign to let everybody know that that they're working on it you know that shows already sort of an engagement with the problem so what we're seeing here is not just neglect straight up but you know it does reflect what could be one of two things you know a problem with the original design in some way the technical design of the pond or more likely the way in which it was built and the way it's been cared for the designer of this park the lead designer of this park Claude Cormier told me that The pond was supposed to be lined with uh, large river rocks. In other words, large stones of, I think, four to six inches across. And those stones were taken out of the budget as a way of cutting the, you know, as a way of making the project hit its budget, those were taken out. So the bottom of the pond does not have a steady layer of stones. Um, And so the technical design of the pond, you know, had to be adjusted to deal with that. So I don't really know ultimately whose fault it is, but it is totally plausible that if this had been built in the best possible way, in the most technically sound way, it wouldn't be green and a little bit smelly. It would be clear. And unfortunately, what we got was a cheaper version, um, a version that has been value engineered, as they say in the construction business. And that is unfortunately just kind of a fact of life when it comes to our public spaces.
0: And sometimes with these things, uh, you know, it, it may seem that you're you're only you're only cutting one little thing from the budget or from the original plan. But uh, these things, uh, especially when you're dealing with water filtration systems or uh, trying to mimic uh, a natural system, I mean, ecosystems are often fragile. And so, if you're trying to mimic one, uh, I could I could see a world where taking out that seemingly one small pin, the whole thing
1: collapses. I think that's right. And. There are other sort of more familiar things happening in this park, familiar good things happening, um, because the park is well designed. So, you know, we're standing with our feet or sitting. We're sitting with our feet on these granite cobblestones and the the way in which they are laid is perfect. The slope is just right, the spacing of the cobbles is just right, the quality of the materials is just right. And at each point where one line of cobbles runs into another one, you know, you've got one kind of block hitting another kind of block. These little corners are usually where a construction project falls apart. You know, something was off by half an inch and so we have to cut a block to make it fit. That happens all the time. Here, there's very little of that. The, what it's called the hardscape, the construction of this park is like immaculate. Uh, and it was built by the way, by a company called Somerville Construction and they deserve credit for that. But that comes from the quality of the contractor, but that attention to detail also comes from having the right designers and paying them adequately. And that's another thing that was unusual about this park, that you know the office of the late Claude Cormier got the job and they were paid what was a reasonable fee, rather than having to sort of hack it out and try and make the project work with a minimum number of hours, even though they couldn't really afford to do it right. Design upfront, delivers a quality product that stands up to time.
0: I also just like to point out that uh, I think a lot of defensive architecture and Kara uh, Chelyu, who's a friend of the show, has written great things about why what that looks like and why it's bad. I am looking at these benches and they aren't built in the way that a lot of seating is built to discourage maybe someone who's unhoused or just having a rough time needs to uh, just lie down and uh, I think that is uh, actually a a huge plus.
1: Agreed. I think it's lovely. Although there's a compromise as well, what you said is correct. It's also true that people with mobility issues often need hand rest or armrests on either side in order to stand up or to sit down comfortably. And so what we see on these benches seems to reflect that um, each of the longish benches that's about 30 feet long has one fully accessible sort of station at the end. So if you need the rails, you can, but the rest of them are free of these rails so that as you say, if somebody wants to lie down here, they can do it. And you know, it's a beautiful thing.
0: Well, we, we put on our, our critical eye. We we've talked about uh, our misgivings and, uh, what well, we hope for the future of a place like this. But uh, it is a beautiful park. You rightfully wrote a glowing piece in the Globe and Mail about it. And unfortunately, the the architect, uh, Claude Cormier, as you said, uh, recently passed away. And he has had a major impact. Canadian architect based in Montreal, set a major impact in Canada in Toronto and globally. So I think it's, it's time to take this opportunity to just talk a little bit about his legacy in Toronto and beyond, especially on the waterfront in Toronto. So talk to me a little bit about Claude. Yeah, it was really um, a shock to many people
1: uh, when Claude Cormier died of cancer just a couple of weeks ago. He was only 63. I did know that he was sick. Uh, he knew for many years that he was sick uh, and had been sort of living on borrowed time. But in that time, you know, he got everything he could out of life. And as a professional, he was a remarkably positive and optimistic presence. And he also insisted on quality and on creativity. So starting in Montreal and then in Toronto, he built a series of public parks that are very well constructed, are really good spatially. You know, they're organized, they're great places to hang out and to sit, and also have a bunch of whimsy in them. You know, the first two of his projects here were HTO Park, as it's known on the waterfront, and then Sugar Beach, both of which employ Things that look like umbrellas, the sort of permanent fixtures that look like umbrellas, uh, which provide shade to people and also are, you know, fantastic placemaking elements. They, you know, make the place feel uh, festive and special. The ones at Sugar Beach are bright pink, you know. And here we are in in this park of his with the am- animal sculptures. He did another project not far away in Toronto uh, about five years ago, a renovation of a park called Bursey Park, where he designed a new fountain which is fed by statues of dogs spitting water. Right, so he really had a unique combination of technical expertise, understanding how to make spaces that would be comfortable for people to sit in and move through, and also this like goofy taste that he used very deliberately to sort of make stuff that ordinary people would like, and even if it was a little bit kitschy. And, and it, it's a beautiful combination, and unfortunately, you know, pretty much unique. And and this project is a, is a product of that. Sensibility.
0: Yeah, those those projects that you talk about, like Sugar Beach, uh, he, he's had many partnerships with Waterfront Toronto. A big part of kind of rehabilitating uh, the waters, waterfront and Keyside, all across downtown Toronto. To me, maybe this is just my personal bias, but that is around the time when when these projects were finally unveiled that people started to talk about landscape architecture in a serious way instead of just. You know, architecture, architecture. What what do are, what are the buildings look like? How high are they going to be? What style are they in? Before that, it seemed to me that landscape architecture, at least in this city, was primarily functional. You know, we're, we're going to put a, a, a sports field here. We're going to put a dog park here. We're, you know, uh, very utilitarian in a way. And uh, this park is not that. It's, it's very specifically, as you say, a place to congregate. You wrote about it in, in your Globe and Mail article. Did he lend a hand in opening people's eyes to the value of good landscape architecture.
1: I think he did. I think he had a tremendous impact on that. Some of his projects here were for, as you said, were for Waterfront Toronto, this sort of combination or organization of three levels of government that's been delivering some very high quality parks. And, you know, Claude's work here was very high profile. Sometimes it was even controversial. You know, when Rob Ford was mayor, those pink umbrellas at Sugar Beach, which cost $12,000 each, became, you know, the subject of a idiotic city hall controversy. And now 15 years later, they're still there and they still look good. But he, um, he wasn't alone in sort of lifting the profile of landscape architecture. There were some global things happening around the world and certainly across North America. We have seen an increased attention in the last 10 years to public space and to, you know, different ideas of public space that are not just about, as you said, you know, a soccer field and a playground, but public space has places to, in which to spend time. With other people, maybe without a, a program. So I think what Claude was able to achieve was to deliver spaces that functioned really well and that people really liked and also had this sort of, you know, je ne sais quoi, this this like sort of f- these flourishes of humor and whimsy that made them memorable and brought them to people's attention and sort of allowed his, his parks to transcend the sort of self-seriousness of the design professions. And it's a wonderful contribution, and, and we're going to miss him.
0: Well, uh, Alex, I want to thank you for chilling in a park with me. Hey, my pleasure, Glenn. Now, in recent Toronto history, Waterfront Toronto invited Google's Sidewalk Labs to propose a neighborhood of the future. They promised housing, sustainable innovations, and so-called smart technology gathering data wherever they could cram it. For some, it was a chance for Toronto to be a global leader in a new era of intelligent neighbourhood design. For others, it was a corporatized dystopia which sacrificed privacy for wow factor. Ultimately, the deal fell through. Michael Healy wrote a play about the whole thing called The Master Plan, and we spoke to him about the waterfront drama, Toronto's tendency to say no and telling recent local history on stage. I wanted to begin by asking you, when you saw the news, uh, because I know you, we follow each other on on social media, and I know you keep up with the day-to-day headlines, when, when news of the Sidewalk Labs plan first hit, uh, what were your initial impressions? Was it a dubious thing, or were you excited, uh, or do, do you remember your
2: thoughts? Well, I I do remember feeling like being very aware of how slow progress on the waterfront has been. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was born in Toronto, but I moved away. Uh, I grew up in Brockville, Ontario, came back here in the early 80s to go to theater school. And so I've really been living here since 1982. And while there have been, you know, massive changes in the texture and composition of much of you know the rest of the city it's always been incredible to me how slowly the eastern part of the waterfront changed you know and uh, so that was my first impression was that was that there was finally something was going to happen and there was you know there was an outside company that was going to this was not going to be a, tr- a canadian project exclusively but that's really all i knew about it at the beginning and then I, you know, like everybody else, would kind of follow it in the news. You know, and then by the time Sidewalk Labs left, you know, I'd read enough where I was kind of like, well, that sounds like we dodged a bullet. That's probably for the best. Which I think in some respects goes to show you just how how the anti-sidewalk side had captured the narrative around it. Because, you know, as a casual observer, a guy who would... Occasionally, read things in the newspaper, but not, you know. I, I was never, you know, invested in any way. I saw the pictures by the, as I say, by the time the sidewalk labs left. My kind of general impression was that this was Google. This was going to be bad for us. So they, they did uh, an extraordinarily good job of kind of managing the narrative after a certain point. The the activists. Yeah.
0: And when you got a, a hold of Joshua Kane's book, Sideways, The City Google Couldn't Buy, uh, which was based on his reporting at the Globe and Mail, what did you get out of that book? And I'm sure part of your brain is always looking for, could this be a play or not? But what about this book told you that, uh, oh, this this might be a play?
2: It's usually mysterious. What happened was Chris Abraham, the artistic director at Crow's Theatre, uh, he had gotten his hands on the book prior to its being published last summer and sent it to me and asked me if I would read it with an eye towards an adaptation. And generally, when this happens, I politely read the material and then I say, I don't have a take, I don't have a position, I don't have an opinion, and I can't see it as a play. So I was being polite. And maybe it's because Josh's book is so full of scenes with characters in them you know, his style is so clear and clean and, and, and while being narrative based in spite of the fact that it's reporting, Mm -hmm. uh, I could see immediately a story probably because of the enormous contrast between the management at Sidewalk Labs, you know, who were in the main big shouldered New York city types with, uh, you know, uh, large opinions and, incredibly brash way of doing things versus these, you know, Canadian public servants who through sidewalk or through waterfront Toronto had been slowly, so slowly and so carefully bringing change to the waterfront. So that, that particular contrast stood out immediately. And I don't know why, but for some reason I just started jotting down ideas for scene after scene and a kind of spine of the play presented itself uh, really, very quickly. Uh, it's 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 lucky when that happens. I think
0: you do a great job in the play of capturing a sort of Toronto attitude that uh, is very reluctant to move on things. Uh, they they want to overly consider things. I, I don't want to spoil too much for potential viewers, but uh, there is a, a scene which I've seen play out many times and. I think you have too, just because of how spot on it was
2: yeah.
0: uh, about a uh, city council debating a, a, a tree, whether or not to remove it, which happens multiple times every time they get together. Yes. Have you felt that frustration with with this sort of Toronto reticence to commit to a course of action?
2: So I feel exactly two ways. One is it's incredible that anything gets done. And I'm so grateful that there is a kind of thickness to the bureaucracy because I want my city to be carefully managed. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's always a downside and there is here, there is a real tendency to find reasons not to do something. And it's interesting how quickly partisans or people who have made a decision to, to oppose something will come together, even though their interests are different or their, uh, their point of view is, is is different. So it's very easy to kind of coalesce around a no and much harder to find a yes in, in in this bureaucratic environment. And as I say, sometimes that's for the best. You know, it's great that there's no casino down on the waterfront. It's great that there's no idiotic Ferris wheel down on the waterfront. It, it's not so great, you know, and it's great that, the term a spa is, is the, the plans for uh, Ontario Place are encountering so much resistance. You know, it, it's, it's, so that's the upside. But the downside is in moments when you need a kind of speed or a kind of radicalness instead of incrementalness, you just, it's hard to come by around here.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I mean, you you spoke about the the activists uh, and and how they were effective. I'm going to cop to you know my publication w- was uh, among the <laughs> yeah uh, among the course of people that were largely and quite vocally ag- against this plan for for various yeah. reasons. Uh, and I can point people to to my colleague John Lawrence's work on that file. The activists come across in this play as very reactionary, which I, I guess that is the role of an activist, uh, especially when you're dealing with uh, governments, uh, you know, of, of various levels. Were you at, lo- at all compelled by, you know, some of some of the pushback when you were researching this and getting into the story about, uh, you know, the fears that, that they had? And um, Oh, of course.
2: Oh, my God. Of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, you'll never catch me defending Sidewalk Labs. Right this clown car of a company, not even a real company, really, you know, if they had been a real company, if they had been a real startup, and this was their first big project, and their success in this project was, you know, existential for them, then they would have gone out of their way to figure out their partner, to figure out the city they were working in, they would have accepted way more quickly that uh, they were commissioned, you know, they were hired for 12-acre parcel, and that's, you know, that's what they were going to have to figure out how to execute on. So you'll never catch me defending those clowns. And I had a lot of time for the activist position in terms of just how scary a partner they were, particularly once their master plan came out and it was clear that they had designs on, you know, an enormous amount of acreage and... Uh, and that they had constructed things so that all of the things that they were dangling could only be done at scale. And so they couldn't even begin to talk to us, you know, unless they were, unless we were going to give them all this. Like it's just, it's typical and it's, it's crazy. So I don't really, I don't fault the activists. The, the goal of the play is to kind of describe in some ways the shortcomings of Toronto's Reflexive negativity should the right but slightly radical project come along. You know, my basic position is that if I can describe uh, Sidewalk Lab shortcomings, if I can describe where Waterfront Toronto was caught short, where they were naive, if I can talk about what I saw as a kind of heightened irrationality around the negativity that grew towards the process among us among toronto then you know maybe there's a chance that the next time something like this happens and it'll never happen again <laughs> but the next time some you know we get ourselves in this position maybe we can have a rational conversation i was really struck by the fact that this got taken completely out of the realm of climate change, uh, of radical action on climate change, which was uh, Waterfront's goal from the outset. They wanted to tr- attempt to do something radical on climate change and affordability. Mm-hmm. And that was their goal here. They chose terrible partner uh, for that. But, you know, the fact that those goals got set aside in the narrative, and this became entirely about, you know, Google's rapacity... Uh, their rapaciousness and their insistence on moving fast and breaking things. It was a real shame, I thought. And so all I want to do kind of with this play is present in as entertaining a way as possible as many of those different sides as, as possible, kind of describe everybody's shortcomings in the hope that that we can perhaps approach these things a little more rationally. Like my, my, my basic feeling is, This might have been a failed experiment on sustainability and affordability, but my God, we need a dozen failed experiments on that. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we need, we need dozens and dozens of attempts to do radical things, particularly on climate. And we needed them 15, 20 years ago, you know? So here was one thing that was a tiny attempt on 12 acres that, uh, you know, these well-meaning public servants wanted to enact and, you know, they got the shit kicked out of them for two years as a consequence. That's basically my, my kind of position. Now, if you come out of the play and that's not apparent, then I'm super glad because what I want to do, as I say, is present as many different sides of this while making as much fun of the sidewalk labs management as possible because they were just so astounding.
0: It is very thought-provoking, and myself, I do advocacy journalism. And these days, uh, there's no – well, there are dirtier words that you can say than NIMBY, but uh, nobody wants to be called a NIMBY. Right. And yet, one of the victories in the story of Toronto that we we tell ourselves, and your play mentions Jane Jacobs, is when she came here and stopped a highway from being built through the uh, annex neighborhood. Right. You know, sometimes they're – there is a need for call it NIMBYism uh, if 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 you're going to or, you know i i don't think it's inherently a dirty word it's become that when it becomes you know applied to not building housing because someone's afraid of their property value going down or this and that but i wonder how much of that history has kind of shaped activism in, in the city where you know, the, uh, one of our most celebrated stands was we all united behind a, a great big, you know, fuck off. And, uh, and it worked.
2: And we were very happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, the, the tricky part, the funny part, is that you never know. Yeah. You know, uh, Ontario Place was made incredibly beautifully and incredibly functionally all those years ago by people. And we just got lucky. Because they hired the right people with good taste to make a thing. And, and so to some extent, you don't know. And it's the difference between what is Ontario Place, what has it been for the last 50 years. I remember going there as a nine-year-old just after it opened and, and my grandmother taking me. I was on a visit to Toronto and, uh, and just being astounded, you know, and, and having such a great time. Ontario Place, at the same time, needs to be acknowledged, was meant to be self-sustaining and never turned to profit. Like never, never was able to pay for itself. Yeah. So not you know not a not a complete success, but here were people with excellent taste being char being put in charge of something. With I bet I don't know, but I bet there was precious little public input, and we just got lucky that people with good taste were involved. People smart people with good taste were involved. The tricky thing about NIMBYism is it absolutely has its utility. It can stop, you know, a Spadina Expressway. And it can stop big projects at a moment when big projects might be needed. Mm-hmm. You know, when radical thinking might be needed. As somebody who's interested in making funny things, I find that, that ambiguity there extremely appealing. Because you just don't know you know you don't know if it's going to be great or if it's going to be terrible or if the right person is going to show up at the right time and grab a project by the scruff of its neck and push it over the edge or push it over the finish line or if the wrong people are going to get their hands on it and things will be made worse for 50 years you know you just in some ways you just don't know and the the backstops and openness that are attached to Many of our processes now are are the best ways that we have to guess, you know, the idea of open public consultation, uh, uh, of kind of radical honesty in terms of of what's going to happen. When You know, if all of the crap that went down in the green belt had happened, you know, 40 years ago, it'd be way easier to keep all that quiet Mm. until the money had changed hands and until people had you know until it was happening there's really no way around it the hard work of constant vigilance on the part of the uh, of the public on the on the part of uh, politicians and uh, you know constant uh, watching out for people with vested interests doing things that might have the net effect of making things worse and the debate that that inspires there's really no way around all that stuff yeah I don't think.
0: With this play you you've got the attention of people people who don't follow politics, casually follow politics, grassroots activists, and you know I, I've been seeing actual you know movers and shakers who who have gone to this show mm-hmm. is, is there a call to action with this with this show and, and
2: and if there is, what what do you hope people walk away from it thinking? again, I don't want to give too much away, yeah. uh, but i'm go- <laughs> but I'm going to because my only goal with this in terms of if people, you know, if I want people to walk away with something because I want it to be a piece of art. I want it to be complex. I want people to bring them, bring themselves to it and, and test their own ideas and beliefs against what's happening on stage. I want to challenge people where they are. But if I have a goal, it's to make heroes out of the public servants who are attempting to do radical things on climate change. That's that's basically it. And so just because I feel like we don't take it seriously enough yet in terms of the city, in terms of how the how the city gets made and in terms of the public, you know, if they had gone ahead and built all that housing in the green belts, which they're not going to do now, but if they had, you know, it would have all been hooked up to natural gas. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it would have been you know, concrete and you know, like we just aren't serious enough yet on the things that we're going to have to do, you know, and time is quite literally running out on this stuff. And there have been, you know, there are incremental things that municipalities and that builders now accept that they have to do that do make some difference. But any public servant whose purview is housing that wants to stick their neck out and do something radical on climate change, try something radical on on climate change they're heroes in my book they 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 absolutely are
0: well michael i want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me thank you glenn it's been great and you can still catch the master plan at crow's theater up to october 15th so get there Finally, Catherine Hernandez is an author, theater practitioner, and screenwriter who often writes about Scarborough. In fact, she wrote a novel called Scarborough, which she adapted herself into a film. I asked Catherine what it was about Scarborough she found inspiring, why it's important to root stories in community, and the pain of leaving the neighborhood you call home. You return in your work again and again to Scarborough, the place. I just wanted to begin by asking, what does this place mean for you?
3: Well, Scarborough, for me, is home. And anybody who has lived in a place that is othered, as Scarborough is, as a place that was really the butt of so many jokes of about Toronto, you know, about it being the the backside of the city, being like this uh, cesspool of, uh, you know, like being right right near the nuclear power plant where a lot of lower income people could live, uh, where there's the gun trade and the drug trade. And so anybody who, who is from a, a part of the world that has that kind of reputation, there is a sense of pride about where you come from. And the, the resilience that you have despite that reputation and despite living a life with such challenges so that that's for me what it is it's about resilience um, I, I i love i love that part of the city for for that reason that all of us uh like m- many of us in that city because it, it definitely it has like a wide range of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds especially now that it's becoming more and more gentrified but, you know, many of us that are from that area know what it's like to survive, know what it's like to rely on each other to make it through.
0: Yeah, I mean, coming off that that idea of, of Scarborough being the butt of jokes, writing about local communities in Canada in general is sometimes done ironically or considered a liability professionally, concerns about audience reach and that kind of thing. But is is writing about local communities useful, limiting, or, or maybe a bit of both?
3: Hmm, I never even thought about that. It's, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think of like this end goal of is this useful? Like you know, like when I'm creating, right, uh, creating any kind of art, is it useful? Uh, is it limiting? I, I don't do that. I I just want to make sure that I give voice to people who have rarely been heard. So. That That's what I do when I'm creating art. And so I, I and, and you know, any kind of art, I mean, how is it useful <laughs> other than it allowing people to feel seen and acknowledged? It, it's in a capitalist world, it's not a useful thing. However, is it profound? Is it life-changing? Yes.
0: In your work, Individuals and systems are capable of great violence and cruelty, but the idea of coming together as a community in a holistic way is sort of offered as an antidote to this kind of cruelty. Is this something you believe?
3: Absolutely. I believe that, well, first off, I have very little faith in the systems that exist right now because there are systems that have been in place for many generations that were specifically designed to oppress certain communities, right? So I really do feel that you can't work within that system and believe that you can reform it in some way to make it work for everybody. I think you really have to like undo those systems completely and really center people. And one of those things that you can do when you're centering people is that it's Really thinking about the space between people, talk uh, difficult conversations, imagining things beyond a system that works for me. It's worked for me in my life personally. Like right now, I live in uh, Napanee. We have 3.7 acres. And do I have control over the powers that be and the way that they govern me, the way that they oppress me? Not really what I do have control over is I can really believe that this 3.7 acres is a country unto itself. And then on this land, this is the way that we treat people. This is the way that certain people of certain identities are going to feel uh, equal. And I know that it means that I have to have difficult conversations with myself about my complicity in oppressing people. Um, I have to um, really consider uh, creative ways of uh, interacting with others so that we have uh, generative relationships, right? Uh, So uh, I really do feel that it is about one-on-one connection that we can find peace, that we can find ease of being, and that we can survive. You know, as we're facing imminent disaster, right, we really have to consider how am I going to see you as a human like literally, my neighbor. How am I going to see them as human, and how are we going to work together to survive? Because it's not going to be, you know, as we as we as we face apocalypse, it's not going to be uh, something like a cute little, you know, camping trip, or you know, it's not going to be like, oh, it's going to be like going to the cottage. It's not going to be like that. We're going to have to make very very difficult decisions about centering the love that we have for one another as human beings in order to get through. And we have to practice that. So oftentimes in in my books is that you're seeing that is that you're seeing people on this macro level, eye to eye, how can I see the humanity in you? And you can see the humanity in me and how can we move forward?
0: I mean, related to that, I've been covering Toronto politics for about a decade. And what I've noticed is that the city seems to be at war with itself in a way. It, it can't decide what kind of a city it wants to be, or who who it's a city for. And it seems to me that your characters engage in what uh, you know in, in my circles is often referred to as as placemaking, whether they know it or not. It's a very much grassroots, ground up thing. Sometimes with intentionality, and and sometimes just a, a, as a natural outcome of of this uh, love for one another that that you're talking about. We, we've we got a new mayor in Toronto. Uh, we're hoping, uh, some of us are hoping for uh, to see great change, but uh, is there a practical lesson in your stories uh, about the need for change to come from the ground up instead of from the top down?
3: Yes, I mean, again, just talking about the changes that we can create. Uh, I have so many thoughts about governance and, and not necessarily having a, a whole lot of hope I'm so happy with this change. I, I was uh, completely rooting for Olivia and I completely endorsed her, especially as someone who has left Toronto and and filled with so much grief because I've had to do that because I could no longer sustain living there. It, it's, it's so sad to say goodbye to loved ones, to say goodbye to a community that I adore and that, I really am. It's part of my identity. Is 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 that part of the city? And I want to have hope. I I loved I loved her platform, and I loved the fact that uh, the the number one thing was uh, that that really got me was the fact that she uh, truly believed in investing in uh, non police emergency intervention across the city, and that that gave me a lot of hope. So I I can have hope in that, but I can't just relax and just believe that government can actually take care of these problems where the problem really has to be on like the cellular level, the cells being us, right, as people. And so I have to think about the relationships that I have with the people around me, even if they are strangers, you know, like, uh, because most of us who, you know, the people who do live in, in Toronto is like most of us still consider our neighbors strangers. But if we do believe in the humanity of each other, if we focus on love, and I know that seems so granola just to say love, but it is, it's like to believe in the humanity in each other and to love each other through these really difficult times. I believe that change can happen. You know, it's so funny you're saying like about like how the city isn't sure what it is and, and who is it designed for. I mean, like, I don't have any doubt as a brown <laughs> queer person. I, my, I don't have any doubt about that. I know that any <laughs> most cities around the world is designed for people who are upper class and white. Let's just be honest. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And um to pretend otherwise is just kind of annoying. I mean, we're, we're really are facing the end of our species and it's time to just say what's, what's what, Mm -hmm. right. Um, And if you don't acknowledge that, I I don't think that we can get anywhere. We're just going to be running around in circles trying to prove that we're not racist. Yeah, it, it really does. The, it is a difficult thing to say that the change does have to happen between us as citizens. It's, it's a difficult thing. And at the same time, it's very empowering as as difficult as it is, it's actually very empowering to say that we actually have the ability to change things. We might think of it as a microcosm, like, you know, my neighborhood being a a microcosm, but for example, where I am in Napanee, I'm developing beautiful relationships with my neighbor's, There's beautiful exchanges happening, non-capitalist exchanges happening of knowledge, of food, all that. Now, do we have a long way to go? Absolutely. Do I still get stared at because of the fact that we are the only people who look like us, who are queer and people of color in almost the entire town? This is true. And is it going to change? Absolutely. And it starts with us. And I can, um, I, I, I know that it really is about meeting in the middle for the people around me and having a great amount of compassion for them not ever seeing people like me, um, also being uh, open to me learning from them. And uh, it, it does, it, it's so challenging for me to do that instead of just like, you know, like, you know, just saying, ah, screw it. I'm never going to get along with these people. We have nothing in common. Um, But I, I, I really do believe that I have power over that.
0: If you enjoyed that interview, you can find all kinds of perspectives from authors who write about Toronto in the latest Spacing magazine, Once Upon a Time in Toronto, available now. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that episode, please tell your favourite landscape architect, Waterfront Toronto, and local storytellers everywhere. If you have a moment, please share the show around, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, it will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at track82, that's all one word, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or tips, you can tweet at us at Spacing radio that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto where you can pick up the latest issue of the magazine. In the meantime, get out there and crunch some leaves. Cheers.